This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Good morning. Hope you're having a good Fourth of July weekend. If you would like to ask a question, if a question comes to mind or a comment during this message or sometime later, you can tweet or text this to this number. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, this sense of justice on uh, a weekend where we remember as Americans what justice means with liberty and justice for all. There's an image I want to share with you, show you, is an image that's been around for some time, and that's Lady Justice. Lady Justice is the Roman goddess. She's been with us for centuries. She dons and graces uh, many of our court scenes in this country, as well as other nations in the world. And a couple of her striking features are, is her weight of balances, as well as her blindfold over her eyes. To remind us that justice is something that is to be blind to favoritism. To remind us that there should not be any fear of reprisal when we step out and we give witness. We are a people that believe in justice. We're a people that want justice for ourselves. And yet it's difficult sometimes for us to always practice it. We also live in a land that's not perfect. We live in a place, in a time where there's not always justice in the course. There's not always justice, economics. There's not always justice in the business world. So as we talk about this today, we're going to go back to the biblical story of Elijah. Elijah lived in the ninth century before Jesus, 3,000 years ago, at a time when there was a lot of injustice in the country. And a couple of the other main characters in this story are Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen of Israel. Ahab, at best, is a very weak leader. And Jezebel is kind of the epitome of evil. She, more than anyone else in the Bible, as far as the feminine side is concerned, epitomizes evil. And so we're going to jump into the story in 1 Kings 21 as we read about a power play that Jezebel and Ahab make and what God does about it. And then to top it off came this. Naboth, the Jezreelite, owned a vineyard in Jezreel that bordered the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. One day Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard. So I can use it as a kitchen garden. It's right next to my house, so convenient. In exchange, I'll give you a far better vineyard, or if you'd prefer, I'll pay you money for it. So to Ahab's credit, he offers a fair market price for the vineyard. But Naboth, Naboth is just a common guy like you and I, told Ahab, not on your life. So help me God, I'll never sell the family farm to you. Ahab went home in a black mood, sulking over Naboth, the Jezreelite's words. I'll never turn over the family inheritance to you. He went to bed. He stuffed his face in his pillow and refused to eat. Jezebel, his wife, came to him. She said, what's going on? Why are you so out of sorts and refusing to eat? 
He told her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite. I said, give me your vineyard. I'll pay you for it. Or if you'd rather, I'll give you another vineyard in exchange. And he said, I'll never give you my vineyard. Jezebel said, is this any way for a king of Israel to act? Aren't you the boss? On your feet. Eat, cheer up. I'll take care of this. I'll get the vineyard of this Naboth, the Jezreelite, for you. She wrote letters over Ahab's signature, stamped them with his official seal, and sent them to the elders in Naboth's city and to the civic leaders. She wrote, Call for a fast day and put Naboth at the head table. Then seat a couple of stool pigeons across from him, who in front of everybody will say, You, you blaspheme God and the king. Then they'll throw him out and stone him to death. And things happen just the way Jezebel planned it. It all happens that way. And Naboth is killed. In every generation, doesn't it seem to you that certain people in power have advisors? And these advisors that can just kind of take things in their own hands and in some legal maneuvering or quasi-legal efforts get whatever they want. And so it was with Jezebel getting Ahab what he wanted. We continue reading the story. When Jezebel got word that Naboth had been stoned to death, she told Ahab, Go for it. Ahab, take the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite for your own, the vineyard he refused to sell you. Naboth is no more. Naboth is dead. The minute Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he set out for the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and claimed it for his own. So they get what they want. When they want it, however they want it. If you're a student of the Scripture, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you realize that what we just witnessed was the breaking of four of the Ten Commandments. Ahab covets. And then they lie. And then they kill. And then they steal. This is a delicious crime story. Work to perfection. It's a great country, isn't it? But there's one person that's not pleased. There's one person that's in the know. There's one person that this has not escaped his attention. And that person is God. And so in the stories of Elijah, what does God always do? Well, God calls on his prophet. God calls on Elijah to step into the situation, to step into this power play, to say, time out, this isn't right. And this is what happens next. Then God stepped in and spoke to Elijah the Tishbite. On your feet, go down and confront Ahab of Samaria, king of Israel. You'll find him in the vineyard of Naboth. He's gone there to claim it as his own. Say this to him, God's word. What's going on here? First murder, then theft. Then tell him. God's verdict. The very spot where the dogs lapped up Naboth's blood, they'll lap up your blood. That's right, your blood. And Ahab answered Elijah, My enemy, 
So you've run me down. Yes, I found you out, said Elijah. And because you've bought into the business of evil, defying God. Well, so what do we make of this story? One of the things we learn from this story and from like 2,000 different verses in Holy Scripture. I said 2,000 verses of Holy Scripture. That God is a God that is concerned about economic justice and legal justice and ethical behavior. What we know about this God of Elijah, this God of the Bible, this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he is not a Darwin in terms of economic justice. God does not believe in the survival of the fittest. God is always about giving everyone a fair shake, real opportunities. And when boundaries are crossed, no matter who does it, no matter how powerful they are, no matter what position they hold in society, God takes personal offense at that. And so it is with this story. Now, uh, let's talk about some modern-day occurrences. Uh, Let's talk about how this plays out in terms of our own lives. If God is the God of justice back then, and He's the God of justice in the days of Jesus, God cares about justice today. So I want to share with you some of my observances about some places of disadvantage, some places where people can be taken disadvantage of. One of those places is in the courtroom. How many of you have ever served on a jury? How many of you have at least been in a part of a jury selection process? Yeah, several of you have have been that. Um, I've been in the process several times, never been chosen. Don't know what that says about me. But last summer was my last experience of the process. There was an African-American man that was convicted or was being tried, I should say, for a crime against a white woman. And in the process of the jury selection, there were 40-some of us. Only two were of um, a skin that was darker than mine. Asian and Indian descent were represented. And they were quickly eliminated in the selection process for legitimate things that came up. And so it became obvious in this case, that there would not be anyone other than Caucasian in the jury pool. One brave juror stood up and said, how can this man receive a fair trial if there is not any representation of his peers or people that look like him in the jury box? The question just kind of hung in the air. And the question raced in my mind, How would I feel, what would I be thinking right now if as a white man I was being on trial against a crime of a black woman and I was facing completely an African-American jury box? So one of the places 
of disadvantage is when the court system does not include juries of one's peers. In this particular case, the person was convicted. I don't in any way have any reason to question the validity of that verdict. But I do have reason to question the validity of the process. A second example. I grew up on a farm. I grew up in a, in a day and a time where uh, in a community of rural people where everybody knew everybody's business, where you could leave your car unlocked at night or even the keys in the car and your house unlocked. But that community has changed like so many other communities in rural Missouri. My brother can go out to the family farm, and it's a centurion farm. It's been in the family for 100 years. And he can see six corporate hog farms dotting the landscape where people in that community have sold the family farm, sold the vineyard, sold as absentee landlords to those who want to make a profit, a quick profit. And so the air is filled with stink and the soil is affected and the waterway is affected especially when we get this much rain, just like you might notice along the Buffalo River in Arkansas, if you ever journey that way, from the corporate chicken farms of Arkansas. In Grundy County today, which is another little county in North Missouri, Trenton, there's one absentee landlord that's wanting to sell off and rent the property at least to a corporate farm dealer. And there's 500 residents that signed a petition that says, we don't want this. We don't want our property values to go down. We don't want to live near this stink. We don't want this to be going on in our soil. We don't want this to be happening along our riverways. And yet the three county commissioners are saying, we'll just go ahead with it. Because it's income. It's tax income for a county that's struggling. Never mind what it does to the residents. Besides, they don't have to live near the stink. Second place of disadvantage is when people in government bow to revenue at the expense of the land and the people that live on the land. Do you know what's happened in rural America? Do you know what's happened across Missouri? It's what's happening in Springfield, Missouri. That one of our primary issues and our problems in our city is absentee landlords, our slumlords. What's happening in my little hometown is that the store is gone, the church is gone, the school is gone. The little country church only stands as a monument to a different time and a different place where people and businesses knew each other and invested in the local community. So whether it's a rural area or whether it's in Springfield, Missouri or wherever it is, if the almighty dollar is the only thing that governs our activity and the community and the neighborhood go down, Where's the sense of justice and rightness in that? 
Let me just throw out one more area that's a concern to me of a place of disadvantage, and that's payday loans. There's over 20,000 payday loans places in this country, several in Springfield. People, no matter what their credit rating is, can walk in and they can get $500 quick cash. But these loan sharks will provide that cash and bury these folks in a debt that they will never work their way out of in triple-digit interest. I've known several folks in Schweitzer, several folks at church at the center, who've been victimized by these schemes. Don't you think it's good to raise our voices and maybe change some laws or provide some opportunity as an option to the payday loan folks in this community? Well, those are just three examples. You could think of all kinds of examples, can't you? In our world, in our time, in our community, and what you experience in your daily life. In how that power plays are done all the time at the expense of people where people who are the most vulnerable are taken advantage of. Well, let me... uh, share a couple of good examples of fair business practices because, you know, I believe that fair business practice is God's business. John Wesley started the Methodist movement. He said that there is no holiness but social holiness. What did he mean by that? He meant that for us to be right with God, I've got to do right by you. I can't be right with my God if I don't do right by you. If I don't live justly and if I don't act above board in all my dealings with folks. So personal holiness, personal rightness with God also means that I'm going to be right with my neighbor. Here's a couple of businesses that I think are doing that. Donald Flo leads uh, Automotive Enterprises. He's made a covenant with customers and employees and the community to make everybody better off. And in this company that he leads, that he's CEO of, he has these guiding principles. First principle, number one, is that they will limit how much profit they will make on all transactions. Now imagine someone selling a car to you. And they are not going to make more than a certain price off of that car. They're just not going to do it. They're not going to make a killing off of this because of their sense of justice. The second principle is that they'll eliminate then any disadvantage they have over the customer. Things that they know that you don't know, they'll just simply put on the table. Thirdly, they'll offer their employees emergency grants in times of dire hardship. So an employee that's worked for them and with them, when they're in, in a dire need, they can make an application for a grant, not a loan. They provide employees the opportunity to serve the community on company time. They're asking their employees to reinvest in the community in which they're a part of. And then finally, and I love this question, this is the best question of all. They ask this, they incorporate this question in all their training of employees. Would you go home to dinner and tell every person at your table what you did and said today? 
did what you uh, said today at work, was, was it just? Was it fair? Did you treat everyone in a right kind of manner? Did you look out after the public good today? Wow. What a question for an employer to say, that's what I want every employee, everyone that works for me, to follow that standard, to follow that ethic. It makes you think that Jesus may be CEO of that place. Well, you don't have to leave Schweitzer. There's all kinds of places and there's all kinds of people and businesses in our church led by many of our fine folks that exemplify this kind of ethic. Chris Langston is one of those guys that I talked to recently. He's the co-captain of 40 Digits. And I want Chris to speak uh, in his own words to you about how he leads his company. Let's watch. So, Chris, I'm glad you're here today to talk to us about your business. And tell us a little about your company. Uh, 40 Digits. I started with a business partner. Um, We started working together in 2004. Uh, We do web development. Uh, We specialize. uh, We do apps and websites, but our audience or who we market to is advertising agencies um, or large firms that have kind of in-house marketing teams. It was just the two of us starting out for the first few years. We're about to hire our 40th uh, employee. So it's it's a good milestone for us since we're called 40 digits to hit number 40. So it's exciting. What would your employees say to me about you if you weren't in the room? I think they would they would talk about kind of our open relationship. Um, I'm probably similar boss as I am a dad. I'm pretty uh, I'm kind of a buddy as well as as kind of a manager. Hopefully, you know I'm a good listener and I'm I'm involved with what they're doing. So some of the notes that you shared with me, um, I was thinking about what really what's at the root of a, of this, you know, from our perspective or from a business owner's perspective. And for us, it really starts with the people. Um, so I think thinking about the type of people that we were going to hire, um, we, in our industry, there's plenty of talented, um, very talented or skilled people, and that's not always the, the right person for um, for our company. We hire for as much of attitude and um, personality, and are they going to fit into our um, style or our approach? Probably is equally as important to what their capabilities are. We can teach them lots of skills. You know, we're looking for that diamond in the rough that uh, has that spark or has that, you know, is just a good human being. So they can always hashtag, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily a person of the right character. It is absolutely not not true. And it takes a while. I mean, it's, and we were very deliberate about our, our hiring. Um, in an industry that has a lot, a lot of turnover, we have almost none. Um, and I think hopefully that's an indicator of that we're doing that part right. The open and transparency piece um, is, is a trust builder. Um, they're learning how to run a business they because we're open completely open with our financials um, and decision making um, so there's no there's no black box there's no curtain you know we don't come out with the tablets and hand them down and here's our rules it's they're they're part of that so there's a lot of trust there it's a very family oriented um, type atmosphere and that permeates into our client relationships too so 
and your business, your your business partner and yourself, you have to model that. It, it is we it, just like being a dad. I've got to be consistent too, and it's hard. It's it's if I come into work um, and I'm grumpy, and the whole office is going to be grumpy. Um, so I I have to be very aware of um, how we act and that we're consistent. It's not we can't pick and choose what's based on profitability or what's important um, to apply these principles. We have to be consistent across the board, and sometimes it hurts, but it, in the end, it's, it's the, the best, uh, best approach. We at Schweitzer believe that uh, good business practices is God's business. And we believe that uh, we need to be helping folks in the marketplace. We think the scriptures are full of examples of this. The reason we offer Jobs for Life, which is something that, again, is being offered in a couple of weeks to those who want to up their skills and their ability to be able to work, is an opportunity for people to, to carve out a basic sense of living, to have a sense of dignity, to understand what employers need. Chris Langston, who we just heard from, and Pastor Jason and other leaders in this congregation, business leaders, are coaching other people on how to get better at leading their business and helping their employees and blessing their customers and incorporating the ethics of the kingdom of God into their business practices. Let's go back to that biblical story just for a moment. We left Ahab. He had just got the word from Elijah that he was toast. You would think he was done. And yet something strange happens to Ahab. He becomes very remorseful. He's genuinely sorry about the power play. And he asks for forgiveness. And God offers him forgiveness. It reminds us that uh, this God of ours will stand up for the little guy. But he will always forgive even the big guy. He truly humbles himself. God doesn't play favorites. No one is above the law. But no one is beyond forgiveness. We come to the table this morning, the table of our Lord. And the one that invites us to the table is the one that has the greatest injustice of all done to him. Jesus is tried and convicted of crimes that he is not guilty of. The Savior of the world the Son of God, is hung on a cruel cross and dies. And he invites us because we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. doesn't matter who we are. doesn't matter what positions we hold. doesn't matter what we do for a living. We're all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. And Jesus invites us. This God of justice, this God of forgiveness, He invites us. Those of us who've been taken advantage of and those who have taken advantage of others.